0: Om Sahana Vavatu Sahana Vunatu Sahaviriam Karavavahay Tejaswina Vadhita mustuma Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. Om oh, May the Lord protect us both, the teacher and the taught together by revealing knowledge. May the Lord protect us bo- both by giving us the results of knowledge. May we attain vigor together. Let what we study be illuminating. May we not cavil at each other. Om, peace, peace, peace. So we are studying the Kathopanishad, and we have just entered the second uh, section of the Kathopanishad. It is two chapters, basically, or two parts. And each part has three sections. Um, so we're in the first part, but the second section we have entered. And in response to Nachiketa's question regarding the mystery of the self, what am I? The ultimate question. What exactly? What's, what's, the, what's my real nature? Um, Yama told him it's a difficult question. Ask something else. When Nachiketa persisted, Yama uh, gave him a range of temptations, you know, temptation with a capital T, and Nachiketa rejected all of that. Now um, Yama says that that see there are these two paths which come before every human being, the path to the ultimate well-being, ultimate welfare, that which does good to us. He calls it Shreya, and that which is pleasant, that which is instinctive, going with the flow, which seems obvious and attractive, he calls it prayer, the pleasant. Shreya, the good, and prayer, the pleasant. Shreya, the preferred, um, the, the uh, preferable, uh, that which does good to us, and um, prayer, the attractive, uh, apparently nice. And these two come come to us all the time. Now, those who take up the path of uh, the Shreya, the good, by which he means the spiritual path. They attain to the highest goal of human life. That is enlightenment, nirvana, freedom, moksha, spiritual liberation. Those who do not, those who take to the path of what is pleasant, they not only lose that highest goal, they don't attain liberation. But this is the tragedy. Choosing the pleasant, they end up in a very unpleasant mess which is samsara, being whirled around in this terrible uh, storm of births and deaths and experiences continuously of uh, this very limited kind of animal existence uh, in, in various bodies, in various lives. And this goes on. Now, the question might be, if it is true that spirituality is so great, why aren't more people, uh, you know, why, why aren't they spiritual? Uh, why don't more people take up this path of spiritual life? And we saw in the last class, this was the mantra number two. Uh, we have done the mantra number one, mantra number two. Shreyascha prayascha manushya metau samparitya vivinakti dhira. Shreyo hi dhiro abhi prayaso vrinite preyo mando yoga kshema vrinite. An important mantra which says, it depends on choice. One must make a deliberate choice. That I am going to pursue spirituality. That enlightenment is my goal. Like the Buddha did. He set out to become enlightened. He set out to find an ultimate solution to the problem of suffering. Like the young Naren did, which made him Vivekananda. He set out to see God. uh, Like before him, his master Sri Ramakrishna did. Like all great mystics, spiritual seekers have done. From most ancient times from the time of Yama and Nachiketa, down to us. We have made a deliberate choice. So he says, a choice has to be made. Unless one makes a deliberate choice, unless one steps out to learn, spiritual life is not possible. It's not natural. It won't come with the flow of things. So it it has to be an effort from our, a, a deliberate, conscious choice from our side. That's why most people don't do it. Don't take this. Make this choice. They don't take this decision. Why not? He says both of these come mixed up together. The good and the preferable, they are both coming to us all the time. How do we react to life? That, that actually shows what we have chosen. And the dhira, the qualified spiritual seeker, the spiritual hero, this person selects he says, Vivinakti makes a choice, differentiates them. Two things are mixed up. Vivinakti means to separate. In Sri Krishna's language, sand and sugar, milk and water. He separates. Separates in what? In understanding. I see this path will take me where, and this path will take me where. And then I select this path. This will take me down into the world. Into, uh, and this will take me to enlightenment, to God, whatever. So, this selection is made deliberately. Shreyo dhiro abhi so vrinite. The spiritual seeker um, deliberately, consciously selects the spiritual path over the path of, of worldliness. And the worldly person, very interesting language, yoga kshema vranite, preya mando. Clearly, Yama thinks less of the worldly person. He says the inferior one. What does that person do? Does not make a deliberate choice. Quite interesting. If you look around, it is so true. When you come for spiritual life, you deliberately do that. You make, it's a mature decision after a lot of things in life. But what about the rest of it? You know, Money, and relationships, and um, um, you know, material goods, and uh, partying, and all of that, that's sort of going with the flow. That sort of comes instinctively to us. It's not a deliberate, considered decision. This is an important point he makes. Go with the flow. Uh, Nature, uh, be natural. So go with the flow. Be natural is not a good thing. It will, nature will take you down to its own level, which is a material level. Um, Swami Vivekananda in one place warns, do not handle matter too much. Because you become, he says, jada, you know, like insentient. Dwelling too much in, in, the, uh, in material thinking, materialistic thinking, um, you, you tend to become like that. Um, why do we go with, with, with the flow? What happens? Yoga kshema adhranite. Yoga kshema here, I, I mentioned last time, the two things that people are trying to do. When you go with the flow, basically you are automatically trying to do two things get things, yoga, things which which are attractive, nice, you would like to de- get that, you would try to keep getting that. It could be more money, it could be more achievements, it could be praise, it could be acceptance. Uh, people of every age, gender, and uh, every kind of learning, every kind of social status, You keep trying to accumulate these things. And Kshema, whatever we have gained in life, all the things that we like, we would like to keep them. We'd like to maintain them. My property, my um, relationships, um, my um, standing in society, uh, all of this, my health, all of these have to be maintained. And nobody sees anything particularly wrong. There isn't anything particularly wrong in this. What is wrong is thinking that any of this at any point will amount to anything at all in my life. It will not give me any lasting satisfaction. So... This is why answering the question, why don't more people become spiritual? Because they are swept away by this uh, continuous drive for acquisition and preservation of worldly things, things, people, relations, feelings. And spiritual life requires that maturity which will enable you to make a deliberate choice I want to be spiritual, I want to be enlightened what Buddha wanted, what Vivekananda wanted, Ramakrishna wanted, what the great saints and mystics wanted, all across history, in all traditions, I want that too. And Yama says, it's entirely possible, but you have to make the choice. Very few do. Now, going ahead. Number three. Mantra number three. Satvam Priyan Priya Rupan Shaka the translation given by Swami Gambhirānanda. O Naciketa, you, such as you are, you have discarded after consideration all the desirable things that are themselves delightful or are producers of delight. You have not accepted this path of wealth in which a many a man comes to grief. Okay. He says this choice. You have made the choice. Now I'm going to reveal to you the secret we have asked for but I wanted to see whether you make the choice. So you have made the choice. What have you done? He says you have deliberately, clearly given up, rejected these worldly goals. What are these goals? Priyan, priya, just. So the commentator says, those which are delightful in themselves, and commentator says, uh, uh, Putra, Pashu, Adi, you know, uh, children and cattle. So you have to remember in those days, thousands of years ago. So it was not stocks sh- and shares and property in, in, uh, on the Upper West, Manhattan. No, it was cattle and uh, uh, big family and maybe gold, things like that. And Priya Rupan, he says, like the heavenly nymphs, etc., which were offered by Yama, that which pro- uh, provides delight, or you expect delight from them. The f- footnote says, uh, children are one's own self, as it were, whereas nymphs are a degree removed from one. or a quibbling, minor matter. Now. So, you have rejected all of that. Whatever I I showed you, you have rejected. Uh, How have you rejected? He uses an interesting word. Uh, Abhidhyayan. You have evaluated. You have considered them well. And you have rejected them. You found them defective. Let me quote the original text of of the commentator, Shankaracharya. Where he says, avidhyayan, chintayan, you have thought of well over it. You even, it's not bravado. Oh, I don't want all this. Clearly, you are testing me. I don't want all of that. I I want a Vedanta class, uh, hoping that Yama will praise me. I'm a good boy. No, I really thought over it. I know you can give me all this. And I've thought over it. And I reject it. Why? Um, Doshan, he says, uh, uh, considering their faults. What are the faults? He says, anityatva, adi. All right. So what, what does that mean? What did he consider? What did Nachiketa think? Why should we reject these worldly pursuits? Why should a spiritual seeker reject this? Um, because they are defective in themselves. What are the defects? What is the problematic nature of these pursuits? Anityan, he says, they are impermanent, transient. I was talking about this in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna class yesterday. Why does Sri Ramakrishna get very upset when people talk about money or worldly pursuits in his presence? Why does he get annoyed? He says because they are defective. They They are impermanent. Impermanent means consider how soon everything passes. Wealth, youth, beauty, uh, the people you love, all those around you, how quickly it passes, how quickly we become old, how quickly life passes us by, how quickly new generations come and take our place. And from your mature perspective, when you look back, they are playing out the same games we played. (laughs) <laughs> There's no, no way to stop them. You say, oh, I can offer some words of wisdom. Well, we didn't listen. They won't listen either. So it the same game is being played out again. And again, since time immemorial, for thousands of years, for generation after generation. How impermanent all of it is. In the great houses which we dwell in, how many generations have come up? Our uh, you know, uh, when we grew up, there were ancestral houses. So many generations of, uh, uh, of your family would have lived there, which is not so now. You live in little apartments in, in uh, Manhattan, but uh, in those huge old houses, there was some magic there. There were the, the presence of, of generations past. Your, uh, possibly your father and your uncles, they grew up there, uh, and uh, maybe they were children like you. Uh, And your grandparents, maybe they were (laughs) amazing to think that your grandfather was a little boy like you who played in that very house like you are playing now. And that happened. How soon all of it has passed. All that remains are ghosts and echoes from the past. Uh, If you're a sensitive uh, kid walking in those halls of those old houses, you can sense it, actually. Uh, So it's all gone how fast things fly. Um, Wealth, I wanted to tell you, right here is Wall Street, so you know how uh, unstable wealth is. Uh, It comes, um, increases, decreases, disappears. Uh, Youth, health, it can go away uh, in in minutes, you just suddenly see I've become old. Uh, So all of that, Uh, and reputation, Somebody asked a question last time about cancel culture or something. Repetition can disappear in, in minutes, in, in seconds, in today's social media age. Uh, so all of that is impermanent. Well, let it be impermanent. But this, the problem is this. what well, Somebody might ask, yeah, I know a cookie is impermanent. And that's the attraction of it. It'll last for a few seconds, the taste on my tongue. Who wants an eternal cookie? And then then it sounds rather creepy. You're going to have a cookie that lasts forever. No. But the problem is this. You don't disappear. This is what Vedanta says. You are eternal. You have seen all this in the past and you are seeing it now and you will continue to see it. And therefore, all the things with which you tie yourself up, the people, the possessions, the titles and the fame, when they disappear, when they vanish into thin air, and you are left bereft, then it is shocking. We have been gathering up a, a bunch of zeros all our life. It's no use saying that, let them be non-eternal, let them be transient. No, you will not accept it. You will be left with the feeling, what did I do? Why did I gather all this? It's, it's all gone now. Or it's, it's going to go away. It doesn't matter any, not at all in the end. So, impermanence. He says, Oh, you have thought well over this. Everything is impermanent. One sadhu in Uttarakhand, in the Himalayas, very nicely put it, between the eternal and the non-eternal, there can be no relationship. If there seems to be, that's delusion. What does he mean? You are the eternal. Not your body, but you will be continued. You have been there in the past. You are there now. You will continue to be there. But these non-eternal things that you tie yourself to, objects, people, um, reputation, money, and even our own body, they will betray you because they are non-eternal. They cannot, they cannot stay with you. So this, you actually have no relation with them, but the relation that we are trying to, we think we have, that causes us pain. That's one, non-eternal. The Second problem is, Shankaracharya mentions, asarattva. The deeply empty or unsatisfactory nature of things. If these things gave the happiness they promised, you know, toys when we kids, a nice degree from an Ivy League college, um, then a good job, a relationship, um, uh, the kids and grandkids of one's own, and uh, nice vacations, and houses, and cars, and gadgets, and uh, and lots of followers on social media, uh, and uh, Uh, If they could, and good looks and so on, if they could give the happiness they seem to promise. Everybody wants them. So obviously there's a promise there that will give you a lot of happiness. If they could give, then it would be something. But they can't. That's an astonishing thing, which we don't look at. We think, you know, what we think is, we think, oh, let me try again. Let me try another restaurant. Let me try another uh, car, another relationship. Um, uh, another spiritual teacher. Uh, So, let me try this. Maybe this time it will be much better. It won't be. It's the same kind of thing. Just variations on the same thing. So, they are all empty by nature. They cannot give us lasting satisfaction. None of it can give us lasting fulfillment. He calls it Asara. I don't know how to translate. Literally, it means without essence. Asara, Asara means essence. All things in the world are empty. Empty of essence, not their fault. Uh, they are that's their nature. We are trying to load it with expectations, which they are not meant to serve. So asaratva, they are empty. They cannot give us the satisfaction. I have mentioned this earlier also. How Robert Wright points out that this is the way nature is designed. Nature is designed from an entirely evolutionary perspective, designed to make us eat certain things, designed to make us reproduce, designed to make us um, behave in certain ways because of nature's own goals. And in order to make us do those things, nature promises us pleasure. So if you do those things, um, you will get pleasure. But, and Robert Wright points out, that this is a trap here. Nature cannot fulfill its promises. If nature does fulfill its promises, then nature loses. Because if you are deeply, eternally fulfilled by eating the first chocolate chip cookie, that's it then. Then you won't eat any more chocolate chip cookies and you will die of starvation. You need sugar. So nature will promise you, it's really delicious. Try it. And you find it's delicious. And then after some time, it's not delicious anymore. But again, you will want to try it a little later because your body needs that that sugar. It will not give you that lasting happiness which you think. And nothing in the world can give you. And it's designed that way. So it's even modern... um, Evolutionary psychology says it is designed. Nature is designed that way, uh, which which will keep you on the treadmill. It's a kind of uh, Las Vegas gambling machine, which uh, you win sometimes, but just enough to keep you hooked so that you keep on playing in the hope of winning. But ultimately, they say, what do they say? The house always wins. That means the casino, gambling casino will win. You will not win. Similarly, nature is like that. Nature will get its what it wants, but we will not. We'll be cheated if you if try to be natural, you know, quote unquote. What else? Uh, bandakattva. Shankaracharya says, Anityatva, asarattva, adi, impermanence, emptiness, essencelessness of all these things, and etc. Etc. means, for example, bandakattva. It's addictive, it's binding. You can't walk away from it once you spin these subtle forces of uh, attraction, liking, uh, addiction. They, are, they may be all in the mind, but they are powerful. And they can bind strongly. So I know a friend who every day, he, he, he promised a like, um, few months back, I'm going to cut off all my social media um, accounts. This is goodbye. If you have uh, something very important to say, this is one email which you can write to me, but otherwise I'm not there anymore. And this he has done at least half a dozen times in the last two or three years. (laughs) It's like um, somebody who's told his friend, well, I have given up smoking. And his friend um, said, that's nothing great. I've given up smoking many times. (laughs) It's like that. It's binding. It has power. These subtle habits. Habits have tremendous power. Try breaking them. Try going against them. This is a cocoon that we have spun. Very difficult to break out of. So seeing all these, O Nachiketa, you have rejected them. Unequivocally. Atyasrakshi means unequivocally rejected Rejected all this. And then he says, Shankaracharya says, Aho buddhimatta tava. How remarkable, as if, Yama, the teacher, as if he's saying, how remarkable is your intelligence. This is a sign of intelligence. the People in the world will think they are intelligent and you are foolish. You could be having a grand time being out partying or something. Why are you attending uh, uh, a class on an ancient philosophy from India? What is the point of it? Why do you go to church or temple? Why do you go and sit and meditate in, in a meditation hall or go to a retreat where it's all you know, difficult and dry and everything? Why? You could be having fun. So you are not intelligent. I am intelligent. No, Yama says, <laughs> you have shown real intelligence. <laughs> oh, great is your intelligence. Why? You have not taken up that path which in which many uh, foolish ones, they get submerged. They sink in the ocean of samsara. What is that path? The path of preya, The attractive. The instinctive. Going with the flow. Going with nature. Doing what everybody else is doing. Go down that road. You will sink in samsara. And it's, it's Uh, obvious. I mean, you don't have to, you know, the people learn in different ways. The wise ones learn when you read about it. Uh, You learn from the philosopher, from these scriptures. The less wise ones learn when they look around in life. And even less wise ones, uh, the least wise ones learn by their own experience, kicks and blows in life. But they're all wise. The not wise ones, the other wise ones, they don't learn. Uh, Even the suffering they feel that if I try it some other way, maybe it will work. He says it will not work. We have seen through this network, what Buddha called after his enlightenment, he says to Maya, or Mara in the Buddhist terminology, I have seen through your house of deceit. No more, he says. What happens after enlightenment? No more will you weave these webs of deceit for me. Your game is at an end. So this Oh, Nachiketa, you have seen through it, and you have selected the spiritual path. Now, it's interesting, he uses a term which he has used earlier, Srinkam. What is this term? Uh, This is, if you remember, uh, Yama offered three boons to Nachiketa. The first boon, Nachiketa, said that, let my father be happy with me when I go back. and So he settled his worldly affairs. Second one, he asked for the best possible religious ritual, which will take him, Vedic ritual, which will take him to heaven. And Yama teaches him that. And Yama is so um, impressed by that little boy's powers of recall and understanding and grasp of detail, because Nachiketa repeated everything back to him. So he offered him a bonus boon. Do you remember? He gave a necklace. And the necklace, the word used there for the necklace was Shrinka. And you might think it's a little odd. Why would, in the midst of this very ancient philosophical text, suddenly where does a necklace come in? I mean, they had, I'm sure Yama had lots of jewels, but uh, why are this particular necklace? And the commentator there, the deeper meaning of this word necklace is the path of samsara. All these rituals which will take you to heaven and assure you a good life in this world and the next life, this is all bondage. So I'm Vivekananda says, chains though of gold are not less strong to bind. So this kind of conventional religiosity, that also is a bondage. And here he uses that word. He says, this Shrinkam, it doesn't mean a necklace at all. It is the word. This is the path of the pleasant, the uh, the the nice, the going with the flow. He calls it the way of wealth, the way of acquisition, the way of, of the world. And he says most people um, select that path, and they sink in samsara. They sink in samsara, bhava sagar He says, sidanti, bahavo, vaneke, mudha. he says, many people um, many people sink. And what kind of people sink? He says, they are foolish. So, Yama does not think very highly of people who make it a point that the world is everything that there is that is, and that's what we are going to do in this world and there's nothing beyond it. He doesn't think very highly of them. He calls them fools. And he says, in contrast to them, Nachiketa, you are intelligent. You're extraordinarily intelligent that you have understood this at this young age and decided that I'm going to be a spiritual seeker. I'm going to seek liberating knowledge. Now, another great question. So these are actually very important. You might be impatient. When is he going to start teaching Vedanta? Uh, Pure consciousness, the witness consciousness, I'm not the body, not the mind, I'm infinite awareness. All that will come, don't worry. But this foundation is extremely important. If you're not very clear about this, we will be disappointed in the end. Why didn't it work? What else will it take for it to work? It's take this, this clarity which Nachiketa has. That's why Yama is dwelling on it. That's why these Upanishads uh, are foundational. Something like Mandukya Upanishad, which we did, is uh, very sophisticated, very subtle, uh, very extreme and very compact. So it dispenses with all of this and goes to the essence directly and points out what you are. That's it. But Yama takes care to point out using the example of Nachiketa, what we must be like for all of this to work and make a difference in our lives in the end. So another question now comes up. Next, very big question. All right, granted all this, why can't we have both? See, this is a very big question which comes to people's minds. Fine, why can't I be rich and young and, uh, and have lots of Facebook friends and lots of selfies and also be enlightened, uh, be uh, like a Buddha? All of that together, why not? That sounds nice. I see lots of smiles now. Yeah, that look looks good. Unfortunately, Yama will say, won't work. Won't work. This is very important, this next uh, mantra. And tell us why it won't work. And then we have to carefully handle it. It's like a time bomb or like a grenade. Uh, without it, it's pin pulled. It will be handled carefully. What does he say? In fact, let me read Shankaracharya's introduction to this mantra. One line he says, Tayo Adadanasya Sadhu Bhavati yate it has been said among these two paths, one who takes the path of spiritual life comes to comes to good. Sadhu Bhavati means attains the good, attains the highest, which is moksha, actually, freedom. Here but the one who that one falls away from the ultimate goal, the one who takes the pleasant path, the attractive path. It has been said. Tat kasmad. But why? Why not both? Why not have both? Be, have the pleasant and as well as be enlightened. And uh, the mantra goes, Dura-mete-viparite-vishuchi avidyaya yacha vidyeti gyata vidya bhipsinam naciketa sambanye natva kama bahovolo lupanta. English translation would be that which is known as knowledge and that which is known as ignorance are widely contradictory and they follow divergent courses. I consider Nachiketa to be an aspirant for knowledge because all these enjoyable things, multifarious though they be, did not tempt you. Why cannot they be combined, Shankaracharya's uh, or Yama and the Upanishad is categorical. They are contradictory. You can't combine contradictory things. You can't combine darkness and light. Shankaracharya is so harsh. He says materialism, worldliness, and spirituality is like is darkness and light. Spirituality is light, and worldliness is uh, is like darkness. What does he say? I'll read out the original text. He says there is a tremendous chasm an abyss which separates these two paths, the spiritual path and the worldliness. They are, they go in opposite directions. They could be an abyss but suppose they go in parallel directions that would be nice. No, they go in opposite directions. He says they, are, they exclude each other and he says, Tamak like light and darkness. Where light is, there cannot be darkness, where darkness is, there can't be light. Anybody, all the higher spirituality in every religion recognizes this. This is not exclusive to Vedanta. You're immediately reminded of you know the, the New Testament. Jesus says that you cannot worship God and mammon together. Either you will love the one or hate the other, or you will you know, hold on to one and reject the other. So, I forget the exact language. God and mammon cannot be worshipped together. These are not, these are not uh, popular teachings now <laughs> in this very materialistic age. I uh, remember, it was a very moving uh, film made by an Italian filmmaker, uh, brother, Son, Sister Moon on the life of Saint Francis of Assisi. So this uh, Saint Francis, he, he is summoned to the, he goes to the Vatican to meet the Pope. And uh, there he sees the glory, you know, all the jewels and the artwork and the magnificence. And he speaks the truth, tr- truth to power. He speaks to the Pope. It's a very beautifully done, um, uh, scene, if you see, it's very moving. He looks up at and all these uh, bishops and cardinals and the Pope is there and uh, St. Francis says that, have you forgotten what our Lord taught us, that you cannot worship God and mammon together? Uh, here you have piled up enormous wealth. Uh, either you will ha- have one or reject the other and so on. And of course, the, uh, And the, the scene is so beautiful the cardinals and all the high officials, they are very annoyed with the St. Saint, Saint Francis. They said, who, who is he? He's teaching us the Bible. We are high officials of the church. Who is he to teach us? But the Pope himself is very moved. And if you remember the movie, he comes down from his throne and he, he, he catches hold of St. Francis by the hand and he says that um, you remind me of myself when I was young. That I had that same fire, the same desire for spirituality. But over time, the responsibilities of the church and the administration and all these, you know, the politics and all these things, they they covered all of that. And now you see what I am. But he says, and uh, then very moving scene, he says, it is the church is actually safe in the hands of people like you. And he says, it is safe in your hands. And then he says, at your feet. And he bowed, bows down in a very Indian way. He bows down and touches the feet. Actually, he kisses the feet of St. Francis in front of the entire um, Vatican, assembled Vatican. So, I found that so moving. That is uh, that is true spirituality. That um, these are contradictory. Like light and darkness. Then what else? Have, why are they contradictory? He says, uh, viveka viveka atmaka One depends on Viveka, on separation. Already Yama has said, there must be a conscious decision. The two are mixed up. The pleasant and the the good, they come mixed up. The the spiritual seeker must be able to separate them and select one and reject the other. So this is called Viveka. Viveka literally means separating. Good and bad are mixed up. I take the good and reject the bad. God and world are mixed up. I reject uh, the world and take God. Self and not self are mixed up. The not self is rejected. I remain centered uh, in my real self, not the lower self. This is Atma and Atma Viveka. Then, why else are they contradictory? Nana Moksha, Because the results of the what, if you follow these two paths, the paths are divergent. They will take you to different places. One t- In uh, simple terms, one takes you to moksha, spiritual freedom. The other one takes you to samsara. He says, uh, samsara moksha hetu One is the cause of moksha, the spiritual path, spiritual freedom, freedom from suffering, attainment of, um, of lasting fulfillment. The other one is a constant striving and strife and trouble from lifetime to lifetime. Uh, she's wandering in in uh, you know ancient pathways which we have gone through many times. We, we go round and round in them. This is the difference. That's why they are they cannot be combined. So Swami Ashokanandaji uh, he gives this advice for spiritual seekers. Is when when you try to be spiritual, the advice people will give you around you. Oh, that's not bad. It's good really, uh, but we do both. You don't give up your parties and your engagements in the world. Meditate also, do both. So Ashokanji says it's like saying, here is on one hand uh, a cup of nectar, another one the cup of poison. You sip from both. Both are there. Little combine both nectar and poison. Why would you combine poison if you know it is poison? It will only produce suffering. So the two cannot should not be and cannot be combined. Uh, Then he says, Avidya that one is of the nature of vidya and the other one is of the nature of avidya. One is of the nature of spiritual knowledge, uh, another one is of the nature of ignorance. That's why they cannot be combined. When igno- knowledge comes, ignorance disappears, like light and darkness. If you try to keep them both, it will not work. I was reading Swami Vigyananandaji, the disciple of Sri Ramakrishna. Uh, I mentioned it in the talk last Sunday. Once, when he was young, you know, as, a, as a going to Sri Ramakrishna, he goes, he used to read philosophy books. He goes and asks Sri Ramakrishna, Sir, have you read Kant? Have you read Hegel? And Sri Ramakrishna says, what are you saying? Those books are products of ignorance. Throw them away. <laughs> the whole of samsara is um, based on ignorance. Ignorance of my real nature. I do not know um, that I am pure consciousness. I do not know I am the Atman. I think I am this little body and mind. And I will go through the pathway of life. I will age and get old and die. And that's all that there is. This is the product of ignorance. Based on this, I lead my life. Whatever I try to do is based on this ignorance. How? The money that I try to accumulate, the education that I try to accumulate, the the acts that I do. This is I, for myself, these are mine. My wife and husband and my children is priority number one. And then they are others, not mine. This whole idea which I have, and by using this body and mind, I will do certain things which will give me some kind of lasting happiness, which will help me to overcome suffering. Won't. It won't work. This is called ignorance and life based on ignorance. You so how do you know it won't work? Look around. Take a look around. Read. Read about history. Read about the most powerful men, the ones who have enjoyed life to the hilt, uh, ones who have ruled over empires ones who were enormously rich, were enormously um, uh, learned, uh, what exactly happened to them, ultimately? We'll say, well, that's the best that can one can have. This is another argument. In life, there's nothing more than that. No, there is. Look at the lives of the saints and mystics of different religions. One thing is common to all of them. They all claim to have attained fulfillment. What they have found is enormously valuable. None of them ever said, all right, now I have found uh, uh, Jesus or Allah or Krishna. Now let me go back and make a million on Wall Street. None of them ever said that. Now let me go and rule an empire or get lots of children and cattle. You know, like Yama is saying. No. But That means what they found satisfied all their wants. They have nothing more to look forward to. Not only that, they became centers of great power of benefit for humanity. So, he says, this is the difference between Vidya and Avidya. Sri Ramakrishna made this distinction. He says, all that we see in life is Maya, no doubt. But, this Maya is of two forms, Vidya Maya and Avidya Maya. Avidya Maya is I and mine and accumulation and greed and anger and envy and, and desire and continuous striving and suffering in life, that is avidya maya, the maya of ignorance. And there is the vidya maya. It's also maya, but that is um, you know, as Nachiketa demonstrated, integrity, self-control, a simple and austere life and a high thinking, nobility of, of character and spiritual quest. Seeking the quest, what is the ultimate reality of life? Who am I or what am I? quest for transcendence this is vidya maya This is also maya why would you call this maya because ultimately this is also not the ultimate reality ultimate reality is you are brahman already we just don't see that but vidya maya reveals it to us and avidya maya covers it up you can't combine the two okay now one point i want to make here Here, a possible uh, problem might arise. Uh, It is this. that Oh, so this is where we we are being told to renounce the world and become monks and nuns. So, probably without becoming a monk, without giving up the world and sitting in a cave, you cannot become enlightened. No, that is not what is being said here. It is an important point. What is being said here is an inner attitude is your inert philosophy of life. What happens externally may remain the same. Janaka, the great Brahma Jnani, he was an emperor. And after becoming enlightened, what did he do? He continued to be an emperor. Ramachandra, he was a prince and he was enlightened. And what did he continue to do? He remained a prince. And there were some rishis who were monks, like Shukadeva, some rishis who were um, householders. Were they enlightened? Yes, they were enlightened. Look at Yama, the lord of death. Clearly it's mentioned, his household, and there's a hint that that maybe he has a wife and ministers and people and all of that. So he's definitely a householder. And Najiketa probably grew up, there's no record that he became a monk. He probably grew up to be a rishi, a sage, but most of the sages were householders. So they were in the midst of all of these things wealth as in those days cattle and families and children and all of that and yet how is it that they're talking about complete renunciation that this is the path of darkness that is the path of light give up all these and go to the path of light it's an inner attitude what do I mean by inner attitude it's a complete reorientation the purpose of life is God realization and that's what I'm all about the external circumstances of life Whether I live in a monastery, live in a cave, or in a palace, or in in an apartment uh, in the uh, the Upper West, uh, in Manhattan. By the way, the apartment in Upper West, I was thinking, the place where I'm sitting is a monastery. It's also a bit of like a cave where I stay. Uh, But it's also an apartment in the Upper West. And it's pretty palatial by the standards of of, uh, Manhattan. So it's all together. Now... It doesn't matter the external circumstances, but the internal attitude matters. Look at the Bhagavad Gita. That's the most amazing example. Arjuna came to that battle with an entirely good uh, purpose, but an entirely worldly purpose. The kingdom which my elder brother and we deserve, that has been snatched away by these villains, and, I have to, and they have committed many atrocities. I will take away what is, I'll fight for what is rightfully due to me and my brothers and uh, avenge all those atrocities and punish these villains. This is dharma for a warrior. It's like a policeman or a soldier. And that's a pretty worldly thing. He came with that attitude. Now, when Krishna teaches him Vedanta, his attitude completely changes. He wants to become enlightened. Now, obviously, Yama will say, path of darkness, path of light. You have to give up the path of darkness. You have to follow the path of light. Good. Arjuna does that. But practically at the end of it, what does he do? What does Krishna tell him? Does he tell him to go away and sit in a med- cave and meditate? Actually, Arjuna wanted to do that at one point. And Krishna says, no. Externally, this thing can continue. You can do give it up and go away, but externally this thing can continue. And you can be in the midst of all, that, all of that. But the goal should now be God-realization. And your life should be like that. What is the test? There is a test to see if you're genuine. Where is your mind? What are your activities like? If you're still pursuing the next million dollars, the next relationship, um, more Facebook uh, friends, if that's going on and that's the goal, then we have not really shifted. But if all of those um, pursuits are there, there is money or something which you are devoting for the welfare of others, for example. You have made it into a spiritual practice. It's a karma yoga for you, a service of others. Then apparently you're still doing the same thing, but it's uh, it's become a part of spiritual practice now. Then you're walking on the path of light. And what I'm trying to say is externally one may not change very much. You may still be in your family, still have a job, still not put on this orange robe. You may still put on uh, um, trousers and pants. And yet, you may be entirely on the path of spiritual uh, quest. That's an important thing to understand. Otherwise, this distinction which sharply Yama is making, can, if you think about it, it can give rise to serious misgivings. And it has over the centuries. So there are very ancient teachings in Buddhism, in some schools of Buddhism, Jainism, some schools of Jainism. Enlightenment is only for monks. The best that a householder can hope for is to be a righteous person in this life. Next life, you'll get the opportunity to be a monk or a nun and attain enlightenment. Um, In in extreme forms of Jainism, for example, which is a very austere religion, the more austere the monk, then only you get enlightenment. There are the Digambar monks who are completely naked. And their doctrine is that uh, the other monks who wear simple white clothes, they cannot attain enlightenment because they're wearing clothes. <laughs> so it goes to that extent that you have to physically give away everything else, then only you become enlightened. But in Vedanta, you see, most many of the teachers, somewhere monks, world renouncing, somewhere uh, kings like Ramachandra, uh, like Krishna himself, uh, like Arjuna, somewhere householders, um, Yama, uh, Yama himself, or, or uh, many of the rishis. Or um, um, the King Janaka. So these things, this has to be understood. It's an external thing. External things have to be spiritualized. Your activities, possessions, if they are dedicated to spiritual realization, then you are on the right path. You are on the path of enlightenment as much as any monk is. But where is the test? Um, Rama, when he was he was about to be crowned the crown prince of uh, Ayodhya, that you will become the next king of Ayodhya, the city of Ayodhya. And because of so many political moves and all that, overnight, he was exiled to 14 years in in a forest. From a crown prince of the city, you become a a beggar virtually, and that to exile to the forest. And there was not the least change in the, the soft smile which was always there on Rama's face. So Tulsidas in the um, you know the Ram which we chant every fortnight in Belurmat in the introductory verses, he bows down to Ramachandra. You know, Ramachandra is one of the avatars of, of Vishnu. So I bow down to Ramachandra. Which Ramachandra? Says who's the the impending exile to the forest, the pain and the dishonor and the sorrow caused by losing a kingdom overnight and being thrown out by your nearest ones and sent off to an uncertain future for 14 years in the depths of the forest, it could not cast the least shadow on the smile of Rama's face, on Rama's face. That Rama I bowed on to. Now notice, if it was of the conventional religion kind, if it's a devout, conventionally devout, moral person, good person, I, am, I, I believe in God, God will take care of me, and I'm going to be the next king of Ayodhya, and, and um, all is good. If tomorrow, in a completely unjust way, I'm thrown out of all of that, then it will be a big shock to me. Because what was primary for me, God was not primary for me. What was primary for me was the world. God was there helping me in the world. I believe in God so I should get a good deal in the world. That's the thinking of many devout people. That is not the higher spirituality Yama is speaking about. But because Rama was completely tuned to his own divine nature to to Brahman, so when the external world changed suddenly around him, he is completely unconcerned. It's a tremendous uh, demonstration for us. In our own age, Sri Krishna. Once there was a complaint against um, somebody who was a priest and uh, the owner of the temple, uh, it was being managed by uh, Mathur Bhavu at that time. So he gave a command to the temple guards that that particular person should be turned out of the temple, uh, temple garden of Dakshinesh the temple of Kali. And the minions misunderstood the command and they... Not only throughout that person, they also told Ramakrishna that you have to leave. Uh, the master has told us, the owner, uh, manager of the temple has told us that you have to be uh, removed from this temple. So Ramakrishna was sitting there. It says that he put a, uh, his cloth, I think maybe a towel over, over his shoulder. He just got up. The moment he heard this, he got up and started walking towards the gate. At that moment itself. No shock, no uh, uh, upset. To such an extent, that, but what happened was luckily, I think Mathur Babu came running and um, fell at his feet and said, why are you going? You have told me to go. So, no, no, they are absolutely mistaken. Please come back. And he came back and sat down and continued the conversation where he had left it off. Such tremendous detachment. Why? Because you know, he's, at no point is he attached to any of that. He is attached to his Divine Mother, Kali. Uh, to God. That's his only attachment. Nothing in this world. So he is remaining. He is a priest. He draws a salary. He, is a, he has a room to stay, stay in. He's in the midst of a temple garden. He has a position in society. All of that, none of it is he, he's attached to at all. That is the test. It's not literally that you have to give everything up, in, including your clothes and um, sit naked in a mountain cave and meditate. Then only you have given up the world. No. You have to have a positive quest for God and the rest has to be harmonized in your quest for God. Yes. Then the next mantra. Avidyaya mantare vattamana swayam dhira panditam manyamana dandramyamana pariyanti mudha andhenayvaniyamana yathandha Living in the midst of ignorance and considering themselves intelligent and enlightened, the senseless people go round and round, following crooked courses, just like the blind led by the blind. A stunning condemnation of the so-called intellectual. I don't believe in any of this. Uh, I am strictly logical, scientific. I believe in my particular ideology, whatever it is, Marxist, Freudian, whatever it is. And uh, none of this—I don't believe anything beyond this world. It says, and uh, Yama, he condemns this. He says, "Swayam panditam They—they they think that they are good people. They think they are uh, wise. Pandit. Pandit means one who. Literally, the original meaning of pandit was panda. Panda means atma vishaya which means the realization of who am I. A person who has got that is a real pundit. But nowadays, of course, there are Wall Street pundits and there are election pundits and so many pundits. So, pundit means an expert in some area, thinking themselves to be you know, masters of the philosophy of life. We have understood what life is all about. He says, you, just, uh, you know, it's known by its results. He it says, such people they wander around lifetime after lifetime horrifying is their fate don't, don't see it they go round and round round and round round and round not in one life multiple lives and they are blinded one poet says blinded by the dust of this ancient walkways which I have walked for countless ages he prays to the Lord that won't you take pity on me that all of this teaching you are giving me has no effect on me because uh, I am helpless. Uh, I am covered with so much mud and dirt which have accumulated lifetime after lifetime. All these wonderful teachings leave no mark upon me. So I throw myself up at mercy. So he says, dandram yamana, wandering around in the pathways of life and death. Uh, Many ancient lifetimes have have we gone through. So all of these ancient philosophies in India, Buddhism, Jainism, schools of Hinduism, they all say that we have had thousands of lives earlier. We have gone through untold suffering, many lives. And now we are just, this is glimmering of awakening. You might say this just a way of putting it so that we are serious about spiritual life, but who knows really? Uh, And so we should take this opportunity very seriously that it has come and it may not come again um, in many lifetimes, so it has come by some circumstance, by some grace. Let us take it up very seriously and become enlightened in this very life, or at least make so much progress that the next life also, as Krishna will say in the Gita, you will become, you will inevitably walk the spiritual paths in next life. By the way, in, uh, in the Gita, we will see next. Arjuna asks this question: Suppose I don't get enlightened in this life, is it all lost? I want to get enlightened, but I don't. Uh, Then Krishna assures him, once you have started on this path, even if you don't get enlightened, one thing I can assure you you will not go to lower lives. You will uh, continue next life itself again, you will be a spiritual seeker and you will continue from where you left off. Where you left off does not literally mean suppose I don't attend one more class of Katopanishad. So in the next life, we like start from the next mantra. Or we'll have to repeat the whole kathopanishad. It doesn't mean the actual texts or the memorization of verses or you know. It just means you. It means something much much deeper, much more than these studies, classes, uh, little practices that we do. The samskaras, the deep tendencies that have been built up within us, those will stay. Those we will carry. In fact, that's the only thing that we'll carry from this life into the next, and that will um, propel us. Krishna says, unwillingly, amazingly, without any possibility of spiritual life, this person will be swept into spiritual life in the next life, uh, and will make continuous progress until he or she attains enlightenment. So that assurance is given by none other than God. God is in charge of quality control in spirituality. So we are bound to uh, so that, that to that level we are safe as long as we hold on to spiritual life. But it's even better if you attain enlightenment in this life. <laughs> the problem is dhira pandita they have declared themselves that we know that's the only person who cannot be helped. It's the person who thinks I know. If I don't know and I'm asking, then I can be helped. All these things will help. But I feel I know. And in fact, you don't know. I know. Then only life can teach. You will not be lost. Life will teach. But life is a hard teacher. It's a terribly hard teacher. It will break us down before, before, uh, until we admit that we've got to learn. So it's much better to learn this way. He says, these are fools who do not walk this path and they think that they know and there are those who follow them. Andhe na niyama As the old saying goes, the blind led by the blind. The blind stumbles and falls, but if he puts his trust in a master who is blind, in a philosophy which is blind, what is blind? Materialism is blind. Nature is blind. You put your faith in that, you stumble even more, fall even more. So that is Yama's and gloomy and <laughs> dark um, prognosis for materialism. All right, let me quickly take a look at the comment. Oh, there are so many comments. Brinda says Does choice depend on vasanas? Yes, to some extent. If I do not, Prabhupada says, if I do not have free will, how can I make a deliberate choice between Shreya and Preya? You have free will. Who says you don't? We all have free will. All these spiritual teachings, um, the teachings of the great uh, masters, every religion assumes you have free will. I know what you're thinking about. In ultimate sense, we have no free will. Let's set that aside. Practically, all of this makes sense only if we assume some degree of free will. Abhijit says, this mantra 1.2.3 indicates that Najiketa has rejected worldly joys after consideration. Najiketa's Vairagya is coming out of Viveka, discernment. Um, are there other mantras which point to uh, Najiketa having the other two of tes, fourfold qualifications, six treasures, and yearning? Yes, already it's done. Um, notice Najiketa's persistence in staying with uh, at uh, Yama's door um, for getting you know what he wanted that shows the control of his senses and his endless insistence on, uh, on uh, self-knowledge, uh, on the knowledge of the ultimate reality about oneself. That shows his mumukshutva, his intense desire to be free. So all that we later see very neatly, it is said, the fourfold qualifications. Uh, viveka, the discernment between eternal, non-eternal. Vairagya, dispass- dispassion for the non-eternal. The sixfold Treasures, that means Disciplines of Body and Mind. And then Intense Desire to be Free, Mumukshutvam. All these are sort of neatly set out when we read Vedanta Sar. But they have been uh, excavated, they have been uh, you know, drawn out, mined out from these texts. That's why I say when you go back to the Upanishads, it may not be as neat as you find in Vedanta Sar, Drik Viveka, the later uh, non-dualistic texts. But it's important to go back to the sources. Where have they got all this from? It's from texts like this. It's from, like, for example, the story of Najiketa. John Anderson says, what is the role of gratitude with regard to life's experiences? All be they uh, transitory. One must be grateful. Why? There is a beautiful um, analogy uh, given in Sankhya philosophy which compares Prakriti to this old lady like a grandmother you know it says who carries her weak children or grandchildren whatever you call them across the desert of samsara the desert you know it's a it's a hard place lifetime after lifetime she wants to carry us to enlightenment and she gives us two things it says bhoga apavarga bhoga means experience what is experience it's life itself many many lifetimes of experience It is she who is giving it to us. And Apavarga means freedom. From this limited existence to the unlimited. From the limited to the vast. This also she is giving us. So we must be grateful. In a theistic paradigm, like in say Christianity, Islam, Judaism, or many of the theistic paradigms in Hinduism, it is God. God has that role. God has done, made creation, God has put us in this situation, and God is giving us all these experiences. So let us be ultimately grateful. You cannot be grateful if the world is your goal. If the world is your goal, then you are very clear about what you would like to have and what you would not like to have. Then you can't be grateful for miserable things in the world. If are, but if your goal is enlightenment, then everything is an experience which is taking you towards enlightenment. Gita Dev says, Nachiketa being so young and being so knowledgeable, um, you know, it's not so much knowledgeable. If he was knowledgeable, he wouldn't have asked Yama for teachings. He is, he has that insight. It's not so much learning that he has as something more important, a deep insight into the nature of life. A true Adhikari indicates he might have been a highly evolved old soul in a young body. Surely, surely, surely. I have come across these very ancient souls in young bodies. Because I was in a monastery where young monks were trained. And it is so clear. All these young men have, become, have come to become monks. They are all walking on the path of enlightenment. On the path of light, as Yama would say. But why so much difference among them? They are all good people. They all want enlightenment. Imagine, such a good company. That is the, the whole classroom when I was teaching is full of people who are like Nashiketa they're seeking enlightenment. What a wonderful place to be in. And yet, there's a whole range, a whole spectrum there. Some of them are extraordinary. They are much younger than me. I am the teacher. They are the student. There is no doubt. I can clearly see they are ancient souls. They are far ahead of me in spiritual life. So it's a joy to see such people. It's extraordinary to see such people. You just pray to Sri Ramakrishna that all goes well with them in this life and they attain to enlightenment. Rick says, it seems to me that if one's fulfillment is within, one can still prefer a comfortable house to a shack, a good car to a jalopy, etc. without getting attached to them. The trick is to be established in yoga before performing action. Correct. One may prefer that, but one has to be careful also. When you prefer the pleasant, it has a way of ensnaring you. Um, there is the story of the uh, you know Kopin uh, Kevaste. It's a famous story among monks. For the sake of a loin class. Uh, and uh, so there, there's this monk whom his guru told him to do meditation and live a simple life in a you know, like a in a hut. And he had no possessions except his own loin class. And then uh, uh, what happened was, one day he saw that this, um, uh, he had washed the loincloth and kept it for drying. And at night, a mouse would come and nibble on the loincloth and try to drag it away. It was his only possession. He thought, what can I do? And then he hit upon this idea. Let me get a cat. So a cat will take care of the mouse. It actually happens. I, I myself faced it. Not a loincloth, but I used to say in this cottage uh, high up in the Himalayas, there was a mouse which would take away my soap. And every morning I had to go and search. I knew where the mouse lived. So it was a rat, basically. Uh, And the soap bar was too big for it to drag into its own. I don't know why it liked soap. Something there which attracts um, uh, a rat. So it it would go to its its hole, but it would not be able to drag the whole bar inside the hole. I would come and snatch it out. And it would look at me with its little beady eyes from inside the hole uh, in fury. And I could see its nibbled, marks of nibbling its teeth on the, on the soap. And it would, it would be a daily affair. Every next day, it's gone again. So this monk got a cat. Now the cat needed milk. So the monk thought, um, somebody advised him, every day now you're going to beg for your own food, plus you're begging for milk for the cat. Why, do, why don't you, instead of begging for milk, why don't you get a cow? The cow can beg for, uh, the cow can give you milk. So you need a cow, and then for the cow you needed fields for uh, you know pasture, and uh, and then um, somebody gave him a place to stay and the place for the cow to graze, and then he needed somebody to look after these things. So he had he hired a servant, and uh, finally all these things kept on increasing. He needed a better place to stay, and uh, somebody advised, "Look, why don't you?" So all these things are so troublesome to manage everything. You need a wife. So why don't you get married? So finally he got married and then he had children and he had a full uh, roaring household. Many years later, his guru came back. Instead of the little uh, hut, he saw in that place a mansion with servants running around and this uh, very busy man sitting and you know doing accounts and giving orders. He said, oh, disciple, what happened to you? And the disciple said, he fell at his feet. Uh, I'm sorry, master, but it was all for the sake of a loincloth. So, when we make a decision, what is comfortable in life, we have to be careful. It shouldn't be for all for the sake of a loincloth and get caught up. But yes, the point is that. The point is not to endlessly put yourself through hardships. The point is, whatever helps you to keep your mind on guard. Uh, I remember... I was sitting at the feet of this master in the, in the Himalayas who was teaching us the highest non-dual Vedanta. And when he heard I and my friend, another monk, we had come from the Ramakrishna mission. We are actually a little odd in the monastic community because in our order, non-vegetarian food is permitted, especially the Bengalis uh, and people in eastern part of India take non-vegetarian food. Of course, most of the monks, they don't. Uh, I mean, who are from the north or the south or west. But still... And it's well known in the community in the Himalayas that they're very strange monks. Because there, let alone the monks, even ordinary people there in those areas, they don't eat non-vegetarian food. So when we were sitting there and we identified ourselves as monks belonging to this particular order, the, some of the other monks started chuckling. And they said, oh, you're from that monastery. Well, they eat fish there, don't they? And they, they chuckled and looked at each other meaningfully and sort of nudge, nudge, you know, wink, wink. The master was sitting there. I couldn't say anything because it's true. Uh, the master was sitting there. Amazingly enough, this very traditional old monk, he took my side. He said in Hindi, so, He said, it doesn't matter what you eat. You have to keep your mind on God and that's important. So that's the, uh, the core, like the key to all of this. Um, Sean Lee says, we have to hold on to something to live the life forward. Otherwise, life is boring. Going with the flow seems not normal and logical. Otherwise, life will be extinct. The spiritual path also gives us pleasure and requires dedication to it day after day. Otherwise, we won't get anything. Okay, think about it. I'll tell you something. Keep this along with... Um, all those things which give meaning and purpose to your life. See, no, notice nobody's telling you to uh, turn away your children and kick the do- dog out of the door and say, I'm going to <laughs> meditate. I don't want any of you around. No, no. You can keep all of that, but focus on spiritual life and you begin to see that this is what actually matters. Uh, nothing externally. That's why I said no, no massive change has to be there externally. And be careful of making massive changes externally. It generally doesn't work. Michael says, uh, why doesn't Brahman evolve human beings to naturally and effortlessly per- pursue Shreya instead of prayer when we go with the flow? Well, why, does, why do we are Why are we here at all? If we are Brahman, then why even be human beings? Why even be sentient beings? Why at all this game of life? So you can push this question further back. And if you, the straight answer to your question is, it does happen. That's what is going on. Only the time frame of Brahman here, God time frame of God is so vast and so glacial that it seems uh, terribly long from our perspective. From God's perspe- perspective, God is evolving us to attain uh, ultimate enlightenment. But why then, the question would be then, why at all this game is going on? So that goes back to the fundamental uh, fundamentals of Vedanta. Tamiko says, how does one discern between true mature Vairag and that which is actually born of fear of life? What will happen is, if it is not true mature Vairag, it won't last very soon you will see that uh, uh, when things go well for us, I'll be delighted to be swept back into the path of avidya, into the path of the pleasant. It's only when things are going badly then you have fear of life, uneasiness, uh, escapism. When things go our way, the moment you withdraw from life and you uh, center yourself, things will begin to go your way. You will notice external world begins to fall in place, things go nicely. And then that is the test. Will you stick to your spiritual life or uh, enjoy the newfound peace and niceness all around? Lisa says, wasn't King Janak an example of someone who had both material and spiritual together? Yes, he had. But if you that's the thing. He's not combining both. If you ask him, he's all spiritual. Exactly like Ramachandra. This is the point I was making. Ramachandra, he's a king. So he seems to be spiritual plus uh, being a king. But no, when he's thrown out of the kingdom, he's not at all affected by it. He doesn't say, I've lost half of what I had. I'm still spiritual, but I lost the kingdom. No. I've got what I had. The rest is nothing to me. It can be there. It cannot be there. He's perfectly fine in the kingdom and in the forest. Janaka also says the same thing. He says, If the entire capital city of the empire were to go up in flames, actually nothing is lost. Not like Nero, okay? If you're thinking about that. Rick says, most people here are householders who manage to integrate spirituality into worldly responsibilities. Should we all run up to join a monastery? No. Arjuna suggested that uh, and, so, and Krishna said, nope, not your dharma. And are we told what happened to Najiketa later on? He became enlightened. There's no mention that he became a monk. Shravani says, why can't the same be said about the, port, at the Pope at the Vatican? Renunciate. Even though there is prosperity all around, why are we appreciating what St. Francis said? It is because the danger with being in the middle of it all is that it can actually overwhelm you. That's what the Pope was saying to St. Francis. It can overwhelm you. And you one can slip back into a very worldly way of living. That should not happen. Okay, I'm going to stop here because we have really run out of time. Om Shanti 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 Harihi Om Tat Sat Shri Rama Krishna Panamata